you know, what if I had just given up, right? I would never have realized my lifelong dream. It's so easy to give up. It's so hard to challenge yourself. Hi, and welcome to Make Contribute a Verse. I'm Brenna Jennerette, children's lit author, mom, rock climber, and co-host of this podcast. My co-host, Josh Munkin, is a children's lit author, dad, and science communicator. Today's guest is Lisa Rogers, and though we covered all kinds of amazing things in this interview, like the plop of doom, Lisa's advice about how to get to the heart of nonfiction, and there's even a Clarissa Explains It All reference for all you 90s fans, the thing Lisa most wants you to take from her interview today was what kept her going. That was her at the top of the episode talking about perseverance. Make sure to listen to the end to hear how Lisa almost didn't become an author. Here's Lisa's verse. Well, and your dog would not be the first dog on the podcast by a long <laughs> shot. I mean, Brenna's agent's dog, I think, was on there for a while, shaking his collar and all that. So we take it in stride. Yeah. We adapt. Awesome. Yeah, his tags were in the back kind of jingling throughout the whole the whole episode, you know, moving around and shifting. And yeah. <laughs> so fun. So thanks for having me. Oh, That's yeah, fun. of course. Thank you so much for coming on. Josh and I were just... Um, sharing messages back and forth before we came on and we both were like oh my gosh we went through and we, you know we were doing our research and, and we just read 16 words and it was Aww. wow yeah I feel like I, I just have so many questions I want to talk about your debut of course too but yeah well I mean 16 words is my debut so that was yes. my first picture book I'm sorry. I meant, yeah, yeah, yeah. I meant your one coming out. Your new release is what I meant. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yep. Thanks for the, yes, yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah. But yes. yeah, I'm happy to talk about whatever. You know, it's so fun just to talk books and reading and our responses to what we read. It's kind of a gift to be are, in this business. You're, you are a librarian by, by, by day, right? Well, I was. So yes. I was first a daily news reporter and then I was a, librarian for 20 years until June, the end of June, 2020. And I thought, okay, this is really hard <laughs> teaching during COVID. It's really hard. And um, I maybe should use this time to focus on my writing instead. You know, I've done a lot. I had done so much during my library career and I was really proud of everything I did. And it was my students who really inspired me to write for children. But if I was going to write for children, I really needed to devote more time to it. So I made that you know horrible what? As, choice. As, as someone who's taking a break from his day job, I can certainly sympathize. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could dedicate a little bit more time to it. I'm fascinated by, uh, by your work as a reporter. Uh, I mean, I've, I have a journalism background as well. And I'm wondering how much of that you feel like you leverage in your writing. So at first, when I first decided to that I wanted to write for children, I thought, how hard can it be? I've been writing two stories a day for 10 years, and I have ideas. I find ideas everywhere I look. But of course, it's a completely different kind of writing. And I had to learn the craft of writing for children, even though... Every day in my job, I read books, I selected books, I saw children's reactions to books, I made suggestions for what children should read. But internalizing 
how to make a book happen needed time, needed I needed education, I needed colleagues and um, mentors. So that even though I was a journalist, I, uh, I wouldn't say the writing part um, affected my journey in kids in kidlet. But what did what was the huge benefit of being a journalist was one being able to take on a lot at one time, meeting deadlines, having deadlines to motivate me, and also finding ideas everywhere. I knew how to look for ideas and. For my debut book, 16 Words, I found my idea in a newspaper in the New York Times when I read about uh, the fact that the person who owned the wheelbarrow that William Carlos Williams wrote about had been identified. And I immediately thought, that is a story. And my husband agreed. I I remember the moment and... um, and, but I let it sink in, right? In journalism, you don't have time to let anything sink in, <laughs> right? You just Absolutely. have to produce. Yeah. And um, so it was really a, a wonderful thing to be able to, to think about why this story affected me so much, why I felt it so deeply in my heart. And I was so careful about writing it. I didn't want to start writing right away like you would, you know, in, in a you know, for a newspaper, you would interview someone and you'd just hop right on your computer and start writing. But no, I, I, it was such a special story. I really wanted to take my time and do it right. So how did that process go, Lisa? I'm really interested in hearing more about, you know, like how you found your way into that story, like how, you know, how you figured out the structure. I'm sort of battling my own nonfiction story at the minute, and I've rewritten it I rewrote three three new drafts in the last like twenty four hours. Actually, Josh, I'm sure you're not surprised. I no, I like <laughs> I went through the living room the other day and I was like I felt so smug about myself and I'm like I told my husband Gene I was like I've got it I totally got it this is the draft I, it's <laughs> it's totally coming together and then like three days later I'm like dude I just rewrote it twice and I'm gonna have to rewrite it one more time and he's all like I wouldn't I he's like I'd be worried if you weren't writing it again like this is just it's like kind of insane the you know the amount of ideas because you're saying let it sink in which can sometimes be a detriment in my opinion because it's just like oh no now I have another another angle you know absolutely and that happens to me all the time but with this book that did not happen oh I wrote it right from the beginning and I'm showing you my notebook oh wow fascinating Um, very cool day after day Thaddeus Marshall picked up his red wheelbarrow balanced it on its tire and carted it off through the streets of Rutherford New Jersey his son Milton shooed away the chickens in his yard And then I have, day after day, Dr. Williams picked up his tools. He packed his doctor's bag. He lifted it by its handle. So that parallel structure was there right from the beginning. And I really didn't change it. My editor helped me shape it, beautifully shape it. She helped me add more, made it more rich. But I had the heart of it right from the beginning. That doesn't always happen. (laughs) You know, of course, I thought, oh, it always happens this way. 
Yeah, but I no. mean, journalism is <laughs> is is about forcing your for, forcing yourself to churn out copy on deadline. But this is really about like you know sometimes you have to wait till inspiration strikes and sit with it a bit. Um, and then for the for the people that are listening to this in the future, uh, we got a glimpse at the paper notebook, the origin <laughs> of Lisa's story, uh, sixteen words. So that was very cool, and just to see the little sketches and things on on there that you had as well. We don't usually get that kind of glimpse. Because most most people are you know churning out their own copy on a Google Doc and some, you know things that can't really be shared <laughs> in this right. format. So it's really important to me to use usually pencil and paper to write my first thoughts, and I always have something next to my bed um, at night. I use it to write down all the things that I have to do the next day, so that I can wake up fresh and start thinking about what it is my latest project, right? And sometimes things will come right into my head without me even trying to think about them. So it's essential to have that. So the project that just sold and is going to be coming out next fall um, happened just that way. And I have it, I had this notebook next to me and I wrote something, I'm showing you a long notebook here um, with lots of scribbles and, um, What's on here now is maybe one of those new beginnings for one a nonfiction story I've been wrestling with for years um, that's close to my heart. But I just took out this paper and I scribbled all over it and I scribbled a, my whole manuscript. Then I put it in the computer, mm, worked on it a little bit. Honestly, I didn't touch it that much and it sold just like that. So that was another like 16 words moment. That's almost. a unicorn for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, stuff rarely comes out of my head, you know, the way that I want it to the first time. I've had maybe one or two, and I mean, I I don't have any published books as of yet, but I've had, you know, the the rare one that comes out and I don't have to do anything to it. But especially with nonfiction, I feel like you try so hard to do justice to the story because it's not, it's not your story necessarily, right? So you're trying to sort of make it your own and and do a good job. There's all these other people sort of riding on it. Like you don't, you don't want to tell it in the wrong way or pick the wrong angle. Did you feel that way at all with this one? Like you sort of were, or you just, it just came out that way and you were like, well, this is, this is how it has to be. So I think that it's personal that writing nonfiction to me is my personal reaction to someone's life. And when I, when that other stuff gets in the way, like thinking about, oh, what is the most important thing for people to know? Or what is the most uh, important thing that this person would want me to talk about? That kind of throws me off course, throws me off track. And that's when I start writing many, many drafts that are not at all getting to the heart of the story. So I think for me, to write a successful nonfiction, um, you know, picture book biography, I have to think, what am I feeling? That is the heart of the story. What is, what is it that made me want to write this story? What should people know? And what do I want people to feel? So I wanted for 16 words, I wanted people to feel just the importance of connecting with other people. Now, I don't know if that's what William Carlos Williams wanted, but I think he did. And um, I think that's why he wrote about his patients, even though he 
sometimes was frustrated with having a day job and not being able to write all the time. It was hard to make a living as a poet. He had a living as doctor. But of course, his patience inspired his poetry. So I think connection was really important to him. And so um, with this latest one that I can't talk about, I, I do think that the essence of what I wrote is the essence of what this person tried to get across. So for me, um, I know I'm all about details. I love doing research. I love, you know, there are so many things that can't make it into the story though. I think so. Oh, I think yes. to sell for me anyway, I've got to go way beyond and like re and really personalize my reaction. And that somehow comes out in the writing. I don't know. I don't know how it happens. That's a, that is a <laughs> great insight. Cause I, what you were saying about, you can't put everything in there. I've has been so difficult for me because the story I'm working on, I just find, you know, fascinating, like every piece of it. And you cannot possibly cram that all into a, you know, one nonfiction picture book. I'm like, well, can we do a series? Can we just do like a series nonfiction picture book on, the, on this one? Yeah. Right. Could I just publish every draft? We'd have, we'd have 28 in the series. Would that be, is that cool? Is that something an editor might be interested in? I like, would love it. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, I mean, this this occurred to me as I was getting more familiar with 16 Words. It's like, it may be something that were I to see it at the library um, or at a bookstore, and I wasn't familiar with William Carlos Williams or his poem, I might pass it over. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really fascinating that, how, that, that the title is so super specific to that experience, but the text is so super transportable and layered with these these relationships between these two men, there are notions of class, there are notions of caring and service and community. Um, and it's, it's so much bigger than here's the story of the, how this poem came to be. Mm. Uh, I mean, how do you, how do you think, Thank and you. Uh, there must've been conversations about this, but how do you think about the, the way that it's marketed or the way that it faces its potential audience or the way that it's sort of taught, should you do a read aloud? and do some instruction mm. around it. Mm. So, well, I, I know that it is being used for teaching, for introducing children to poetry, and that makes me so, so happy. I used to use William Carlos Williams poems in my teaching in the library, and I would have children create mental images of some of his poems, so on paper, and then they would write their own 16 words poem or their own, this is just to say poem. And that was so fun. But I think, um, yeah, I love what you said about that. The book is so layered. The title is, yeah, 16 words. I mean, to think, what can you do in 16 words, right? You, What can you do with 32 pages of picture book? Um, what can you do in your life? So you start with something small and it can get big, right? You're one life. How big can your influence be? How many people can you affect in a wonderful way? What can you do with the words you have, with the platform you have? There are so many ways to take, I think, to take this book. Um, and I hope that people enjoy using it. I think that it, you know, for some people they say, well, what is, you know, what is the red wheelbarrow poem? Just like um, Sharon Creech had her character um, Jack talk about and love that dog. What is the big deal? And honestly, I never thought about the owner of the wheelbarrow <laughs> until I read that story in the New York Times. And I think, 
course, there had to be an owner of the red wheelbarrow. And what was that story behind it? So to me, it was just such a, um, a tender moment that um, Williams described looking out the window, right, at the wheelbarrow. Um, I wanted to get that across. And I think that um, children respond to it, even though it looks, it's such a quiet looking book. It's not, you know, but, you know, kids need all books, all kinds of books. So I have a funny book too. <laughs> yeah, 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 you sure do it. We'll, we'll get to uh, how we'll go. But yeah, you're talking yeah. to two super goofy picture book writers. <laughs> 16 Words is very different, uh, very different tonally than the things that we write, but much respect because it's, uh, it, it's, it's great. Thank yeah. You. And I was going to make one comment too, really quick about the, um, the choice to sort to put the poem, to put the 16 words at the end, um, instead of putting it at the beginning to sort of familiarize, you know, the readers with like what was going on, what you were talking about, because all of the buildup is that whole, I mean, that's how, that's how the story came about, right? Looking out the window and gathering all of this information and sort of interacting, right? And then only then could the poem be written. So I thought that was really great because the whole time I was like 16 words. I'm like, okay, is it is it a book with just 16 words? Are the 16 words this first page? When do the 16 words come, right? And so you're sort of like waiting and you know that it's like happening. And then at the end, it I felt like it was just such a it was a very subtle and very like clever sort of reveal to put them there <laughs> and just sort of end with that because it wasn't, you know, it's not so like in your face about this is what the 16 words are and this is what happened and, you know, drawing all the really um, important parallels. Cause I mean, kids don't want to be hit over the head with any of that, right? Like nobody does. I think it was, I just think it was really well done. Well, that um, decision to add the poem at the end was the suggestion of my editor. And of course I took it up because I realized how brilliant it was and how, what a beautiful thing to do. And which, which she did by suggesting that, um, just, yes, brings home the whole um, message of the book, the whole world of the book, right? Becomes, yeah. it's right there. And every time I turn this page and read it aloud, you know, I get to that point where they're looking out the window together, which Chuck Groening, the illustrator, um, created that image just so beautifully. I choke up. As many times as I have read that, I it just hits me. And so I'm so, so grateful to my editor, Ann Schwartz, for thinking of that and um, for just so finely helping me revise my words so that they would be as effective as the 16-word poem. Okay, it's time for a cookie break when each week we do a bite-sized review of a book we loved. Josh's review this week is for Where Are You From by Yamil Sayad Mendez, illustrated by Jamie Kim. It's intergenerational, it's layered, and it's lushy, gorgeously illustrated. And if those aren't enough, it deals beautifully with a really difficult concept for people of all ages to understand and put into words. This week, I'd like to give a shout out to Looking for a Jumbie by Tracy Baptist, illustrated by Amber Wren. This is a super fun and bouncy story about Caribbean fairies named Jumbies set to the rhythm of We're Going on a Bear Hunt. My son loves the vibrant illustrations and catchy cadence. Check the show notes for links to the authors, illustrators, and where to buy their books. Make sure to get your own reviews or library requests in. And if you really want to cover all your bases, 
Enter those reviews and requests into the monthly Chewy Reviewy drawing. And remember, reviews and requests are the number one thing that can help an author's sales. Now, back to our show. Totally. We are uh, we are fawning, and I'm sorry to, <laughs> to to be glowing so much, but it's really, uh, yeah, we really had a lot of fun reading it. Thank you. Um, I, so how about how about Hound Won't Go, though? We've already <laughs> talked about your dog. I, we know the inspiration, I think, for Hound Won't Go. <laughs> yes. So my dog, Tucker, um, who we lost during the pandemic, which was very tough at age 14, was just the most hysterically funny dog that we could have had. We had a wonderful Dalmatian before him who was more like a princely creature. But this <laughs> dog who everyone thought here in Massachusetts was a giant beagle. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I never heard of that breed. But he's 90 pounds, really tall, really big, and... Um, yes, he had the markings of the beagle, but there was no way <laughs> he was one. That's like the legend of the beagle. <laughs> like that's your next story. Like how did how did this dog like come from the, this like mythical place where he's ninety pounds and he just like takes over the city? <laughs> exactly, the legend of the giant beagle. Yes. So funny, but people would actually like stop on the street. Like if I took him down into our little village for a walk, they would stop roll down their windows and say, is that a giant beagle? Oh my God. What, what kind of dog is that? And they'd be holding up traffic. It was hysterical. But so this dog, when we got him at the shelter, he was um, about six months old and we couldn't even get him into our car. He would not go into our car. I had to sheepishly go back into the rescue and say, could you help it? Uh, get him? Get a dolly or something. Yeah. <laughs> Dolly. A treat. <laughs> nothing, no, no treat, no piece of steak. Oh my gosh. Um, nothing would get him to go. So, you know, most people want their dogs to stop. Like all the stuff that you that is made for dogs to control dogs and help you walk them is um, for them to stop, right? Haul them in, right? Have them do what you want them to do. So, but there's nothing to get them to go. What, please, somebody <laughs> for hound owners invent something that gets dogs to go. I would take treats and throw them sort of like Hansel and Gretel backwards way. <laughs> okay, go to this, you know, next five feet, go five <laughs> feet more. And um, so what he would do is we would call the, we would call it the plop of doom. You know, he would just be like, okay. <laughs> I've had enough. I am now going to just stop, drop, and plop in the middle of the road. Fortunately, there's no traffic on our street. And he'd just lie there like a pancake. And you just could oh not gosh. get him to move. Could not. So um, one day <laughs> I was walking him and we were approaching an intersection. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> Everybody's going to stop for him because he's so big and they, you know, can see him. You know, he. It was amazing. He would make people stop so I could cross the street. It was great. But then he wouldn't go or he'd want to go some other way. And or he'd go into the middle of the intersection and just stop there, right? Just like in the book. So sometimes people say, oh, so you wrote another nonfiction book, right? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. This is very true to life. Very true to life. So I'm walking him one day and I just it just popped into my head. Uh-oh. 
hound won't go. And I do love poetry and I think in poetry a lot and poems come to mind all the time. Um, and this one ended up being a picture book. I can't stop imagining the plop of doom and like a vortex like swirling around him and just like sucking in like the whole world. It's like this whole- it sucks in everyone's productivity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, it like stops time, right? Like, um, do you guys remember that old 90s show? Clarissa explains it all and she would mm -hmm. like, she could stop time. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, oh my I gosh. Love, I used to love that show. That was it. I mean, you could not be in a hurry, right? So, yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I would resort to calling my husband and having him pick us up because he would just, <laughs> you know, after a half an hour, that was enough of stop time for me. Or people would stop and they'd be like, do you need help? Is he old? I'm like, no, he's three. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, just lie on people's lawns. You're going for That's a stand instead of a walk. You're just going to stand around. Exactly. exactly. So that was so much fun. And I, I don't know why it took me 10 years to think of that story, but it, it did. 10 years. Someone you know said, go they, ahead. They come in their own time, right? Yes, the stories yes, come out yes. when they're ready. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Someone said, so did he only do that one time? I'm like, no, it happened every day. Yeah, right. You're like, this is this is my life for years. This is my life. <laughs> so I, I have to ask, do we have your consent to name the title of this episode, Plop of Doom? Yes. Yes. Okay. Good. Yes. Right. Good deal. Do you do uh, do you do read alouds with Hound Won't Go? I imagine yeah. that's really fun. It is really fun because um, kids have a chance to participate, right? So they, I like rhyme. They can pop uh, all they want. You know, one thing in my library is um, when we were doing read alouds, and if children wanted to lie on the floor, you know, instead of sitting and crisscross applesauce, right? Mm. They, I just let them do that. Because why not? As long as they weren't like lying on top of someone or bonking someone. Yeah. Um, why not get comfortable? And anyway, I love doing interactive read alouds with them. And so how long ago was sort of fun for them to know, you know, they all knew Tucker. And so seeing him in the book was fun and fun to participate. Yeah, for sure. Do you think about the way that you're going to do a read aloud? I mean, this is back to your experience as a librarian and an educator. Do you think about the way that you're going to teach the book outside the confines of the written word? Not, not so much teach the book, but experience the work live? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would never just read a book, right? Um, even though sometimes children would say, can we just finish the book? Like, my, no. My son does that all the time. I'll be like, no, like, let's check it out. And like, if it's a math book or like a letters book, right? Like we're working on those. And I'm like, okay, one, two. I'm like, what comes next? And he's like, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. I got, it's like he can pick up on, you know, you're like trying to like teach him something. He's like, nope, not having it. I don't like, want to be educated. Know, yeah, no, he knows he knows his letters. He can even do like, you know, he can do basic adding and subtraction, like with as long as I'm not, you know, pushing it. So anyways, I can relate. Right. Well, that's one of those like it comes in its own time kinds of yes. things too. And so yes, of course you had to be so sense I had to be so sensitive to my students. So if for, you know, fifteen minutes we'd been discussing the book and then someone said can we just finish? It's like, okay. So, right, you have to go with it and just be really flexible. And I think that teaching really helped me learn how to be flexible, which is so important for um, writing and for um, 
for accepting suggestions from a critique group or an editor. You know, if the goal is to get children interested in reading, right, in my classroom, you do what you have to do and what works for the moment, what works for one class, the next class comes in, they don't react the same way. So you just have to, you know, intuit, intuit what they need and deliver that. So. Yeah. Um, that makes me think about your book coming out, Discover Her Art, because mm -hmm. that is so you know, we haven't been able to look at it because it just came out, right? March 1st. Is that right? Yes. Um, and I know it covers, you know, several women and their artwork. So in terms of that one for, for read aloud, is that one, have you, have you done a read aloud for that one or is that sort of? Yeah, I don't think I would do a read aloud with this one, but what I would do is, um, I would talk about or elicit, and I've done this um, as I've launched the book, you know, what artists do people know? What, and usually they'll name many male artists that they know. And that's not, you know, that's not atypical at all. Um, what women artists do you know? Why don't we know? You know, I, like I just always would ask a lot of questions in my library class. Why don't we know as many women artists as um, male artists. Why is that? What could be some of the, the reasons for that? And then have a discussion around that. Do you like to go to a museum? Do you go to museums? When you go to a museum, what do you notice about painting? So in this book, we take a look at different ways you could look at paintings. And so um, I could show them, for example, you know, one of the self-portraits. What do you notice in this? So it's just, you know, an explore. I would do an exploration and then tell some stories. Um, so, for example, one of the painters in this book is a French painter, Suzanne Valadon. I didn't know her artwork before I did the research for this book. Um, and she, unlike many of the women artists in this book, did not have um, family that pursued art. She somehow began drawing as a child, had a passion for drawing, um, but she didn't have the, um, the ability to go to art school. She, her mother was a single parent. She worked as a washerwoman. And Suzanne um, made a living as a circus performer. She was a trapeze artist. Oh, cool. But then... She fell from the trapeze and could not pursue her life in the circus anymore. So she began to be an artist's model. That was one thing she could do. But she was so smart because when she was modeling, she watched everything the artists did. She watched how they created their paintings. She, she noticed their techniques and she drew and drew. And um, she was a model for some very famous artists, ones that you'll see in museums, and you can see her face, um, which is super cool. And one of her, um, one of the artists she modeled for said, you know, you draw all the time. Why don't you start using paint? And he encouraged her to become um, a painter, and she was very successful. So um, all the women in this book were really successful, though they're not as well known as they should be. However, there's new attention coming to women artists. There are lots of picture book biographies about women artists. Um, Mira Sriram just published one on 
Amrita Shergill, who is known as the National Painter of India, but I had never seen her work before, and I absolutely adore it. Um, so I, uh, there are many um, exhibitions now of women's work, so I think things are changing, and I'm just so proud that this book is out to help um, young readers um, and adults navigate this change, this long-awaited change um, in our knowledge and appreciation and understanding of women artists. So uh, if I can just draw a parallel for a second, it's interesting. This connection between discover her art and 16 words is less about the ultimate product of their art, which whether it's the 16 words or the painting that she did and more about, um, you know, the journey, what got, what got them there, what happened to them, how can you talk about the art in the context of who the person was and think about who you could be? Um, it's just a very, it's a very librarian and education, educatory sort of perspective. On it. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're exactly right. And I think, um, you know, it's a story, right? To me, that's, their lives are stories, their paintings are stories, and I just want to know more about those stories and well, share them with the world. don't leave out Hound Won't Go. Plop of Doom is in there. Like, <laughs> yeah, we all want to know the backstory, right? Like, that's the backstory. So That's Tucker's, that's Tucker's <laughs> art, right, is the plop. Yeah, oh, yeah. exactly. <laughs> very artful. And also, he very, was very handsome, so he contributed to art that way. I think I have... Uh, I created a, a little line-drawing portrait of him, and where is it? Um, yeah, so I see it every day. It's it's right above my book bookcase. Do you illustrate right. too, Lisa? I don't illustrate, but you know, it's it's that's a great question because when I was growing up, I had a lot of um, illustrated poetry anthologies, and I poured over them and poured over them, and I love the words and I love the pictures. I was in, I could see myself in the pictures. I, I just was would be in books when I read them. And I first wanted to be an artist. And I think it was because while I loved words, loved poetry, loved folk tales, fairy tales, I didn't have any models at all for what, you know, how to go from a piece of paper to a published book. I had no idea. I had never met an author. But I could take a pencil and paper and I could copy a drawing. I could make a comic. I could look at things in my room or on the train and and draw them and that was accessible to me so I thought well okay I'll maybe I could be an artist so what I did was I trained myself to write and draw with my left hand because I was convinced that in order to be a real artist you had to be left-handed <laughs> <laughs> What a wild imposed uh, also, rule. Also, what determination to actually do that, to actually go through with it? Because I feel like most kids would be like, oh, yeah, I totally need to do this. And you do it for like a day and then be like, you know what? This is, this really is actually hard. really hard. Yeah. And I like don't want to do it anymore. Or the opposite and say, like, I have to be accepted by society and train myself out of being a lefty. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't really wow. good at fucking trends like that. But yeah, I was like, okay, I'm going <laughs> along with it. I'm going to be left-handed and I'm just going to be really an artist. But, but, but I, I still love to do, to do. I bet that really informed, though, the way that you, 
you know, get your ideas now and the way that you're always writing things down, right? And having the ideas pop into your brain. So it's not just now instead of illustrating them, you're, you know, writing them with words as opposed to pictures. So even back then, it was sort of like you were gathering all of these ideas. Absolutely. Observation is key. And paying, I always would tell my students, paying attention is so important. Look closely. And um, that's, you know, kind of the way in to to 16 words too. Yeah, look closely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually, I actually just watched your YouTube read aloud of 16 words just before we came on. And you, you know, you, you use that phrase often because you're like, you know, like, look, take a look at the pictures and notice like the red splashes throughout and, you know, look really closely. And you had pointed out (laughs) on one spread, you know, there was a boy in the window reading, reading the book. And so that was, and I could, you know, on YouTube too, like I couldn't, I couldn't see all that. So I was grateful that you had pointed that out. Yeah. I was like, should I pause it and like really like get in there or, but um, yeah. So, but yeah, it was even in those illustrations. I mean, there was so much to be aware of, to look at. So, you know, kids are so amazing. So when I was a library teacher and I would be presenting the book, so I wouldn't be looking at the book, right? I would be holding it up and take a quick glance, memorize the words and, and, um, read them. But children would always see something that I had not seen, even though I had read it many times or looked, I thought, carefully. So kids are always noticing it. And even when I would um, talk to them, when I was a reporter, I would go around to school sometimes and talk about my career. And then then they would draw little pictures of me. And I'd be like, really? They drew the shoelaces on my shoes? I mean, they notice everything. And so, (laughs) so... So expressing to kids the importance of this thing that they already do, they already notice everything about, you know, whatever they're looking at. Mm. This is a way to spark creativity. I think it's kind of fun. We made pinhole cameras in library. Um, We did drawings in library. We did all sorts of stuff that inspired kids to look closely. It was fun. Did you ever use... I'm not sure of the overlap here, but did you ever use your students as, you know, manuscript workshoppers? So not in my class because I didn't want to sort of like cross that line, but I definitely had um, readers who would come and say, oh, you know, if I would tell them, hey, I'm working on this thing. And I might have read my, you know, a couple of my manuscripts aloud to them just to see what they thought, but only after we did whatever lesson we were doing. So I had a couple of readers um, who would always say, hey, do you have anything new? So I would share manuscript. And um, when I, I wrote um, a sequel to Hound Won't Go that hasn't been published and maybe it will be, but my little, um, I think she was in first grade at the time and she narrated a video I made for Hound Won't Go because she's so awesome. I gave, her, I gave her the... Um, the manuscript and she said you know I really liked it she said but I think you need one more stanza at the end (laughs) (laughs) oh you know great feedback (laughs) it was awesome and I was I said to her you know I had thought about adding one more stanza but I wasn't sure so thank you (laughs) kids are the best I bet she loved being included in that way too, you know, to take the feedback and, and say like, yeah, I can, I had considered that. Like, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's special. So when I was making a video, a trailer for Hamonko, 
she was the first person I thought of to narrate it, and she did an amazing job. Aw. It's fun. How do you feel? I mean, we've talked about the, the educator stuff, but that's kind of a segue. Um, you mentioned making a trailer. How do you think about marketing and sales of your books? Mm. It's tough. So it is really tough. Um, so unfortunately, um, Hound came out on April 1st, 2020, oh. which was oh really my. rough. So yeah. 16 Words came out the end of September um, 2019. And I had something scheduled almost every weekend. And I, it, it was, you know, it was more the scheduling it. But once I started, I love, right, I love talking about my work. It's just a wonderful thing to be able to share. You, it's something important to me. So the actual presentations are ones that I enjoy. It's more the putting myself out there, right? I, I was not really on social media before. Um, it was hard for me. And I also was doing a lot of other things like running a bunch of marathons. So, you know, it was just. Um, That's time consuming. It was kind of time consuming. <laughs> so it was, but it was more the fact that I'm a really quiet person and I'm not used to talking about myself. Hmm. But to talk about a book, I can do that. I know how to do that. Um, so I scheduled lots of things during the fall of 2019. I went to. Um, the ALA conference and I got to see the awards being announced, which was amazing. I went to NCTE and met up with all kinds of people and signed many copies of my book. Oh, cool. And then Hound came out and I was so excited. So we, I was the first virtual presentation for Wellesley Books, which is my local independent bookstore, which is really wonderful. Um, and we had lots of people on. It was great. So that part's really enjoyable. Um, and Discover Her Art came out, you know, again, during the pandemic. So it's so hard for authors, I think, to promote during this time, right? Because especially if you can't just be with people and do what seems a little bit more natural and have that back and forth, um, that's hard. But I realize how important it is. And I enjoy getting that message out there. Oh, and I just did it. I just did the greatest uh, presentation in person at my mom's 55 and over community. Oh, cool. The cultural That's club. Fantastic. Yeah, the cultural yeah. club hosted me. And we had a big audience and lots of fantastic questions. And it was in person. Oh, cool. Um, and so much fun. And that kind of thing. Like, I just feed off of that energy that I, I have in an audience. I mean, that's an aspect that we don't talk about enough, this notion that picture books are for everyone. But was it, or did you do a presentation on, on one of your books? So I talked Presumably about... Presumably not Hound Won't Go. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I that was young awesome. <laughs> they have lots of great grandchildren. <laughs> but um, so they... Uh, I talked about my journey because I thought that um, lots of times people have no idea how a book is made, mm -hmm. how it happens, all of the work that it takes to become published, all of the work it takes to, you know, not only have written your story and done all the research, um, but to all the steps that you have to take. Um, those 10,000 hours that I put into journalism, I had to put in another 10,000 hours into this craft. Um, so... I thought we would talk about that, but I did read them 16 words and they were amazed, right? They were amazed at the power of a picture book. 
I I also love too the thing about picture books that kind of, that comes up you know kind of often or or writing in general. It you can be any age. You can start anytime. You know, like I know a lot of um, a lot of people who pour their lives into like a physical pursuit. You know, at some point your body starts to break down, get older. You know, not recover as quickly. And if that is your main passion that can be really difficult. So having something that you can do anytime in your life from kind of anywhere is, you know, pretty powerful. So I bet that was relatable as well. I mean, who knows there could be a budding author in that, in that audience, you know, somebody who has, I mean, they probably have so many stories in them, you know? Absolutely. And there was, so there was one woman who wrote to me the next day and she said, because of you, I took out my novel that I've been working on and had put away and looked at it for the first time. And thank you. That's very cool. It was just really wonderful. Yeah, that's very cool. Right? Just for that one lady. Like I would do I would do a talk just to just to reach one lady, you know, to have her be like, yes, I need to get my book out again. Right? Like that's totally that's a major success. That's awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, right, if you reach one person, it's worth it. Yeah. And then a ripple effect, you know, like because who knows who she's gonna inspire. I know, I know we're going to call this episode Plop of Doom because there's no, there's no other choice, but we've talked about so many touching, <laughs> touching hearts types of <laughs> things about your journey that I, I really, really appreciate. Yeah. And I was going to say, Lisa, I know we can't talk about your project coming up, but can you tell everybody listening where to find you so that we, you know, they can keep tabs on it or they can pre-order once, once you can announce it? Sure. So I'm at lisarogerswrites.com. There's no D in Rogers. Um, <laughs> I, I use my full name on Discover Her Art, Lisa LaBanca Rogers. Um, and I changed my name to my husband's name after we were married because I was so tired of spelling it. L-A-B-A-N-C-A. And then people would say, oh, just like it sounds. Okay. <laughs> so but Rogers, people misspell all the time too. So Whatever. It's com, And I do try to keep it updated. Yeah. We'll put that, we'll put the link in the show notes for anybody who's listening and they can, people can easily find you then. Um, Is, is there anything that we missed that you want to, that you want to talk about before we go? Um, I guess, oh yes. I want to talk about um, perseverance because I almost gave up in this journey. I was about to give up. I had um, 16 words had been um, looked at by an agent. And she said, oh, can you revise a little bit, blah, blah, send it back. So I sent it back and months went by. And I was, like I said, I was trained for marathons and doing other things. And I just, I was teaching, of course. And um, I never followed up. At the end of the year, I thought, okay, am I going to go for this or not? And actually, the reason that right when I had um, was starting school again in September, I rededicated myself to writing. Our principal gave us a little piece of paper that said, by the end of this year, I will see myself. And we were supposed to fill it out, and she was going to give it um, 
back to us at the end of the year, right? Okay. So I've been teaching for 15 years and I have had lots of goals that I've met and I, I'm constantly energized. I don't really feel like I need to create a new goal related to my job right now. And if she's not going to look at it, fine. I'm going to write a personal goal. And so I wrote closer to having a published book. So that was in September. And then in uh, December, I was going to sign up again, trying to decide whether I should sign up again for the 12 by 12 picture book challenge. Uh, and that is how I had con um, some contact with this agent. I thought, well, I can try one more year. And if I don't dedicate myself, you know, I would have to really dedicate myself. And if I don't do it, that means I really don't want it. And in February, I got a call from the agent. We signed. She sold the book pretty much right away. Oh, wow. And, you know, what if I had just given up, right? I would never have realized my lifelong dream. It's so easy to give up. It's so hard to challenge yourself and keep going. And, you know, one of the reasons I've tried to do marathons was, again, those were that was a delayed dream, right? I always thought, oh, how fun. Living on the Boston Marathon route, like you can't not want to do it. But, you know. There are many reasons not to. <laughs> Did you run it this year? Sure. Did you run? Not this year, no. No, because no. it just happened. I had a, I have a friend who her wife was ran it, and they had this amazing experience, and they ran into um, – you'll probably know her name um, – Catherine. Switzer. The woman who – yes, <laughs> yes. I'm like, it's on the tip of my tongue. The woman who, you know, started it all and hid in the bushes, and they tried to keep her from running, and she was there. And I guess the director – runs the marathon every year, like after it's over, right? Yes, so 50 yes, years now yes. he's run this marathon. They also ran into him and they had their two young girls <laughs> and it was just like so inspiring for them. There was this whole Facebook thing. Anyways, I'm like way off off track here, no, but no. Boston Marathon, so cool. It's so cool. And like I can hear the scream tunnel from my house. Oh my gosh, that's challenge. very cool. So you just can't not. Do you throw water to people from your window? You're like, hey, I see you. <laughs> Good job. A lot, lot of clapping, you know, it really hurts. But, um, <laughs> so it does. I mean, I cannot not cheer. You know, you just have to scream because it's just yes. so exciting. And if you're right there, I mean, yeah. It's really great. Um, very and cool. it's lined with people cheering the entire way. So that's very cool. Mm -hmm. I knew, Lisa, from the moment you said you were going to do marathons, you guys would end up talking about this. <laughs> I have to. I have to. But, you know, that's tap, what I said. Tap into that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because perseverance, right? So the last time I ran in um, 2019, I sprained my ankle at mile two. Uh, so could I, I, I was I going to stop? No. Did it hurt? Yeah. Was I on crutches after? Yes. Would I recommend it to kids? I always say, don't do what I did, but I needed to do that for myself. I needed to finish. And, um, you know, finish what you start. Keep going, challenge yourself. That's those are important things for me. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, Lisa, thank you so so much for coming on. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's, it's been, been a real wonderful. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been so great to talk with you. Really appreciate it. You may contribute a verse. Thanks for listening this week. Find out more about us and our guests and the artists behind their cover and theme music at our websites, verse.show, renegenerate.com, and joshmoncourts.com. See you next verse. Bye.